0: Hello and welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. As always, Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Numinous. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer and today my co-host Dr. Reed Robison and I are joined by Dr. Rick Strassman. Rick is a Clinical Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine, and who's probably most well known for his book, DMT, The Spirit Molecule, a book that explores his research with DMT back in the early 1990s. Rick has written several books since then, most notably his 2022 book, The Psychedelic Handbook. Rick's been on some very big, very popular podcasts, including The Joe Rogan Experience. We're really honored to have him on our podcast. We discussed a lot of stuff. We talked about his early DMT research, his motivation for writing the Psychedelic Handbook, the therapeutic potential of different psychedelic compounds, talked about the placebo effect, different types of spiritual or mystical experiences that can be occasioned by psychedelics, the importance of set and setting, the limitations and potential dangers of psychedelic tools, how to integrate a psychedelic experience, and much, much more. Folks, if you're curious to get trained to use psychedelic tools in clinical practice, check out the psychedelic therapy training programs that Numinous has to offer. You can click on the link in the show notes or go directly to numinous.com forward slash hour dash training dash selection and use the code PTF10 for 10% off selected trainings. You hear Reid and I talk a lot about psychedelic clinical trials on this podcast If you or someone you know might be interested in being a participant in one of these clinical trials, you can click on the link in the show notes or go directly to numinous.com forward slash research to learn more about the trials we're currently running. And as always, if you'd like to support this show... You can do so by leaving us a rating or review in places like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We really appreciate those reviews. We read all of them and they just uh, delight me and I laugh and it helps me get to sleep at night. So thank you for listening to our show and I hope you enjoy today's episode with Dr. Rick Strassman. Welcome back everybody to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers. Reed and I are honored to be joined today by Dr. Rick Strassman. How you doing, Rick? yeah of course um, we were just chatting before we hit record and um you know Rick's kind of a, a podcast veteran and he's he's been on big shows. We're really grateful that he's come on our our little show um but for the uninitiated Rick, why don't you introduce yourself um tell people a bit about who you are and what your background is
1: um well, I suppose you know the main you know claim to fame or the reason I'm on the podcast is because of the work that we did. Uh, in the 90s, the early 90s, in Albuquerque at the University of New Mexico, uh, studying DMT and uh, psilocybin, actually, too. Um, it was the first New American study uh, with these compounds in humans in a generation, pretty much. Um, you know, but uh, besides that, I was born and raised in L.A. Uh, you know, went to public high schools. I went to Pomona College for a couple of years, Stanford for a couple of years. Uh, I got my M.D. at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. I trained in psychiatry at UC Davis, uh, then took another year of clinical psychopharmacology research training at UC San Diego. Uh, I, I was interested in you know, looking for a, a biological you know, basis of spiritual experience you know which is you know why i went to medical school and became a psychiatrist and learned research uh and i started off looking at melatonin which not much was known about at the time as a naturally occurring compound that could produce spiritual uh you know uh, know, types of effects um you know so we studied melatonin i didn't find much there then switched into dmt uh and after a two-year process uh was able to start that study uh, and i wrote the spirit molecule as a result it, it was a really you know great story uh the whole you know, dmt study and i wanted to tell it um i wrapped up my studies in 95 practiced you know, general psychiatry you know, for the next uh, 13 years washington state and new mexico um, and, uh, since 2008, I've you know, just been writing pretty much full time.
2: Very cool. And uh, Rick, I'm curious, I've heard you say in, uh, I think a past interview, uh, maybe it was on, uh, a Joe Rogan interview you had, in fact, that friends, family, colleagues at the time tried to dissuade you from pursuing this line of research, psychedelics and, I'm curious what, I mean, there was a a different time then than it is now and than it was in the 60s, of course, but what were they worried about? Did any of that come to fruition? What was it like back then?
1: Um, Well, the story about my friends and family dissuading me um, was with respect to uh, my college plans, which were to study chemistry and get into fireworks. Um, as a kid in high school, I made, you know, bombs. I'm um, in fireworks. It was really a lot of fun. Um, and then I started, you know, college as a chemistry major and I wanted to start my own line of fireworks. And everybody said, no, no, you're a smart guy. You should be a doctor. So, uh, I, I, I you know, dropped that idea. Um, you know, friends, I'm um, in family were you know, quite supportive actually of the DMT work. Um, you know, the university, was very cool you know they said just stay out of trouble get grants write (laughs) papers uh and you know we'll get behind you you know so um i received and you know my friends my colleagues you know psychedelic acquaintances were all quite supportive um in fact uh when the dmt study began i had a, a on a list of you know, prospective you know, volunteers all lined up. They were old, old friends or current friends. Um, yeah, and I got the first two you know, federal grants I applied to the first time around. Oh, uh, wow. you know, so the government was extremely supportive and interested in our work as well. So yeah, um, I had a lot of encouragement uh, to study DMT, You know, not so much fireworks, but in a way I got the <laughs> last laugh. You know, because instead of like explosions out there, I was, you know, studying those similar experiences internally generated.
2: Inner explosions, huh? And that reminds me of another question that I've had for quite some time. And I think it ties into your handbook and your DMT work is um, people often I've noticed are really hesitant to um, have a DMT experience more so than other psychedelics. And yet I have encountered many people where DMT, uh, whether it's NNDMT or or in an ayahuasca tea or whatever, has been their first experience. And I'm wondering what your opinion is on if it matters what med and the dose level you enter into this world, in your opinion.
1: Uh... Well, it it comes down, you know, to the, th- the you know, three basic things, you know, set, I'm in mean, setting and the drug or the, you know, dose of the drug. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, you know, my simple answer is, I mean, it depends. It, you know, depends on the person, depends what they want, what they don't want, what they need, their health, their surroundings, their environment, you know, their support. You know, what they're interested in experiencing so um, you know DMT is uh, you know qualitative is you know quantitatively you know somewhat different uh, because of its rapid onset and short duration you know, compared to ayahuasca or LSD or psilocybin you know so uh, if you've got the support um, yeah yeah it's, it's it's just hard to say um, you know Huxley's book which was called uh, his uh, um, Aldous Huxley's book *Island* um, described uh, um, a society where you know, kids, as they were growing up, or individuals within this uh, you know, paradise-like community, uh, as they were growing up, you know, they would be exposed to different you know, psychedelics, or, or I think, different drugs, and. I'm not sure if, you know, different psychedelics or, in you know, different drugs, but each of the maturational stages was, you know, was associated with an altered state, you know, brought on by hmm. exogenous, you know, substances. You know, so I suppose you would start off with alcohol or mm-hmm. marijuana and then cocaine or MDMA or methamphetamine and then. You know the slower acting you know, compounds you can work with a little bit, you know more. So you know that might be, you know next, and you know DMT, you know 5-methoxy DMT after that. When you're, you know, really you know, solid in your, you know, uh, in your tripping experience.
2: Yeah, that's uh, that's fascinating, and I've also wondered about the duration component, how it plays into this, and um, if it's harder to, if it takes more skill, prep, intention to draw insights from a 15 minute experience than um, an eight hour experience, for example. And if there's any uh, real difference in the rate of difficult experiences um, because of the time spent in that non-ordinary state, anything um, you see on on the DMT front in that regard?
1: um you, you could be you know traumatized i suppose you know by a you know very short experience or at some point mm-hmm. in a long experience or the cumulative effect of a long experience so i think adverse effects would be you know more dependent on uh, you know the set and the setting mm-hmm. uh you know is the, is you know, the, you know the person in a state to be able to or in a state and in a setting uh the environment Uh, in which case uh, uh, a a, a uh, short-acting compound could be used. Um, Yeah, you know, uh, if you don't have much time, if you only have one therapist, uh, you know, know, short-acting compounds are more practical. Um, so, you know, there's that, uh, be, you know, cheaper and easier, uh, and, you know, the whole issue of, you know, psychotherapy too, um, you know, there was a, uh, a study that came out of Yale a year or so ago, you know, giving a you know, full dose of IV DMT to people with depression with almost no therapy. Uh, so, and they improved, you know, quite a bit. Uh, so, uh. Yeah, you know, theoretically, I mean you, you could, you know, treat a lot of patients with IBDMT uh you know, in the course of a day or a week or you know, a month.
0: So, you know, Rick, one of the um just to, to zoom out a little bit and set some more context for the conversation, you wrote this book, The Psychedelic Handbook, um, which we were talking before we hit recorders, we love so much and it's so practical and uh it's like the perfect length, right? It's very accessible, I think, to the public. Lots of good rich information in there. And so, you know, our the name of our podcast is Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers. Reed and I are both clinicians. We work in clinical trials. We think a lot about psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. And what you just said about that DMT study had me wondering um how important if you feel like, or if it's important at all, the psychotherapeutic component of using psychedelic tools to treat mental health conditions is. I don't know if what the data say, or at least your read of the data or just maybe your personal opinion.
1: Um, Well, there's no head to head comparisons of in, you know, the same study, the, you know, the same place, you know, the same investigators. If, for example, with that Yale study, you know, they compared just a single, simple, um, Administration of DMT one time without therapy, and you know then you know compared in a group which, you know, which also received some therapy. And I, you know, you know that kind of study has, you know, not appeared yet, as far as I know. You know, like a head-to-head comparison. Right. Um. You know, with and without, you know, psychotherapy. It's my opinion that you know psychotherapy is important. Um. It may not be, you know, necessary, but I think it would be helpful, uh, in most circumstances. And, you know, there's, um, a couple, um, of reasons that I think that's the case. You know, one is that, you know, there's interest in neuroplasticity uh, occurring, uh, after administration, um, of psychedelics. And the window which occurs, uh, where the neuroplasticity is the most active is, well i'm in lower animals anyway it's a week for ketamine you know two weeks for psilocybin you know so the you know the context you know the setting in which that neuroplasticity is developing is important like if you're reading mein kampf for example or if you're in the uh you know forest you're meditating uh you know the connections will be made in a different manner depending what's going on in the rest of your brain you know so I think you know, like with s s r i s you can treat a lot of depressives with s s r i s but you know the effects are greater and more long lasting if you combine uh it with you know psychotherapy so i think you know that'll be the case um you know uh even if you know therapy is important you know what kind of therapy um is it c b t is it d b t is it ACT, uh, you know, uh, your Freudian analysis, uh, you know, what's the most Mm -hmm. helpful? Uh, So, you know, those uh, are important questions as well.
2: No one's done the uh, Freudian analysis paired with psychedelic study yet, huh?
1: Well, uh, well, so not this time around. You know, that was a Mm -hmm. major emphasis, you know, back in the 60s, you know, was combining LSD with ongoing psychoanalytic treatment. It was called, you know, psycholytic treatment, and it was smaller doses. But you would take your drug, you'd lay on the couch, and you free associate. You know, so that was done for a number of years, especially in LA. You know, lots of Beverly Hills psychiatrists were doing that. Yeah, you know, but there hasn't been a renewal of that kind of work in this current wave of research. Yeah. I mean,
0: like you said, there's lots of questions about which type of therapy might pair well. And we talk about it a lot on the show. I think you, you, you talk about briefly in the handbook about your own experience with Freudian psychoanalysis kind of early in life. And I was curious to ask how your experience with psychoanalysis might have informed the research questions you formed, the kinds of things you were interested in with respect to psychedelic experience, and maybe how you make recommendations about navigating such experiences.
1: Yeah. Well, so I have a, you know, very long relationship with, you know, psychotherapy. I'm, you know, like I have a, you know, disfluency, which I, you know, spent, you know, some time as a kid in, your psychoanalytic, you know, treatment, you know, for my stammer. And I was like, you know, seven years old. Uh, and it's like, you know, like it was, it was strange. We talked about, you know, my bowel movements and whatnot, uh, you know, depending on, you know, the conceptualization using your Freudian psychology to understand, you know, that particular symptom. Um, and I had, you know, more therapy in high school, um, and, uh, it, it was always helpful. Um, and when I went to medical school, it was at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx. Our you know, psychiatry department was was extremely psychoanalytic, uh, you know, Freud and you know, psychoanalysts all around. And and I thought it was a really cool field. You know, the psychoanalysts were cool, you know, with their black suits and their meticulous hair. And I thought, you know, these guys are cool. And, you know, they would talk about stuff that I was interested in, like, you know, fairly dark stuff in a matter-of-fact way. It was, you know, very interesting. And, you know, they were always, you know, talking about, you know, their analysis. Oh, I have to run to see my analyst right now. And I thought, you know, I want to be analyzed. You know, that seems like the gold standard of, you know, psychotherapy. Um, so, you know, once I had the opportunity to, which was in my early thirties, um, I, you know, started psychoanalysis up to, you know, five days a week on the couch. Uh, you, know, my analyst, you might not just you know, say anything in the course of a, you know, 50 minute session. Uh, you know, so it's intense, like, you know, four years of up to, you know, five days mm-hmm. a week, just you, you're laying on the couch, spilling your guts and this guy's not talking to you. So, uh. Yeah, you know, and it, it it was you know quite helpful, uh, uh, f- you know, professionally, uh, because um, it uh, you know, helped me contextualize or understand you know some of what I was going to be experiencing as a you know DMT uh, administrator, you know, like you know how regressed. You know, can you get and what you mm-hmm. know do you do with regressed states and you know, how do you handle them and you know, can you empathize with them so you know that was helpful um, and also my understanding of you know, Freudian psychology uh, was you know, helpful in understanding you know the development of the states on themselves like the unconscious and the preconscious and the conscious and the id and the superego and the ego um, you know those you know conceptual terms uh you know, conceptual you know framework almost helpful um in understanding uh you know what was going on
2: did you go on to, pra- to practice to do analytic training formally like was that part of your uh clinical work
1: no no um, i yes uh I'm a psychoanalytic psychotherapist as a medical student for a couple of years. And, uh, you know, but then it was a number of years before um, I found an analyst in Albuquerque when I was at UNM. Um, You know, but, you know, it it was intense, but it wasn't I'm a training analysis and uh, I haven't been trained as Mm -hmm. an analyst.
2: So I was at uh, the other night, the local Utah Psychiatric Association event, and I was at dinner chatting with some residency colleagues, the training director, some some buddies from residency. This is what, 14 years ago that we finished now. And we were talking about how back then we had uh psychoanalytic case conference we had like uh some really uh fascinating and fun dynamic uh kind of european trained uh psychodynamic folks and we'd formulate cases and we were talking about how that's missing now and and at least in many geographic areas isn't part of the training but i was just remembering how rich of a discussion that was like you said you could talk about anything and and you did and that was so helpful to not turn an eye to all the shadow parts of the world and, and weave it all in these formulations that were just fascinating to me.
1: Yeah, it's curious you know, that you know, psychoanalytic ideas aren't quite you know, percolating up in you know, the psychedelic realm uh, as well. You know, but there was a paper that came out within the last month on you know, psychodynamic psychology and you know, the psychedelic state. You know, so it's beginning, you know, to be thought about again. I think it's a valuable, you know, model, you know, both, you know, for training purposes, you know, training, psychedelic, you know, psychotherapists, and also, you know, to, you know, kind of, you know, see what those states are like yourself and uh, you, you know, be held you know, securely in those states.
0: So speaking of uh, seeing what states like that are for yourself, I'm curious, a question often comes up on our show or when we're talking to trainees, how important do you think it is for a psychedelic guide or coach or therapist to have personal experience with altered states or maybe even more specifically personal experiences with the medicine tools that they're working with? What do you think?
1: Yeah, you know, common sense dictates you know that that's a good idea, but you know, there's no evidence one way or the other. You know, that study's never you been done either. You know, we're talking about comparing, you know, psychotherapy, you know, versus no psychotherapy. You know, that's a you know fairly simple study to design, you know, relatively speaking, and you know the same way there have been no studies you know, comparing outcome and people treated by therapists, you know, with experience as opposed, you know, to without. Y- you would think, you know, there would be, you know, pros and cons to being experienced. I, You know, one would be that um, uh, you understand what the person is going through. Um, it helps your empathy. Uh, and you know what it you know, feels like to you like, you know, hold out your hand and everything looks kind of strange on the back of your hand. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, so to speak, um, you might take psychedelics and then become you know, more solidified in your views about, you know, psychedelics themselves or the nature of reality or spiritual questions. And if you believe that, you know psychedelics inherently make you think a certain way uh, you know that's going to restrict or cons- or confine your conceptualization of what your, your patient um, is possibly going through or what's important you know to them not to you or is you know, true for them but not for you. you you know so i think you know there's you know, pros and cons uh, but but it, you know it's an it, it's a study which you know, could be designed and I oh, yeah, run without much difficulty.
0: Yeah. The pros and cons make sense. It's almost like a double-edged sword where knowledge, personal experience with psychedelics can, like you say, uh, help you have more accurate empathy. And maybe that, you know, if your client knows that about you, it gives them a sense of security and safety. Like, Oh, this person's been there. Um, so the questions I'm getting answers to or the answers I'm, um getting feel more reliable or believable, but the, I, I agree with you, Rick, that I think there's a danger in being too confident in our own experience and then sort of projecting that onto the client and not being flexible, which is a bit ironic because psychedelics, you know, often lead to a higher, you know, like, like higher um, scores on openness to experience and the big five, like it tends to make people more plastic. But uh, yeah, if if you sort of, if it reaffirms your particular worldview, then you run the risk of um, imposing that on others, and that can be real
1: yeah. Bad. You become a you know, psychedelic you know, fundamentalist uh, right. if you are convinced that your way of you know, seeing the psychedelic experiences is, you know, one way or, or the other. Yeah, you know, uh, you know that's an interesting you know, point uh, you raise about increased openness uh, as a result um, of you know, psychedelic uh, you know, psychotherapy. You know, there's a number um, of ways um, of looking at that result. You know, one is that you might become open to crazy ideas. Right. As opposed to cool ones, you know, like uh, You know, so that's, you know, one danger. Um, and uh, I think it also, um, you know, raises, you know, the question of, you know, what, kind of, what, what you know, kinds of raving scales do you give to people? Um, hmm. When you're doing studies, are they only going to confirm what you already believe by measuring a construct that you've um, invented and made a questionnaire you know, to measure? You know, so I think a lot of uh, you know, psychedelic research out there is you know, designed with a you know, self-fulfilling prophecy uh, you know, framework. Uh, you, you believe psychedelics do a certain thing. You develop a rating scale you know, for that thing. And then you demonstrate that scores on that scale are high. You know, that I think is part of the problem with a lot of the rating scales out there.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. And I did see recently, I think there's one paper from late last year out of Hopkins that looked at the... uh, Ex, the ex, personal experience among facilitators with psilocybin and at least alluded to the uh, treatment expectancy concerns. The um, And then there's one in press, um, I think from that same group, I think his name's uh, Jake Ade or Ade, I don't know how to say it, a, a PhD at Hopkins, but looked at how like tw- 29 out of 32 of these facilitators had used psychedelics, had used psilocybin specifically within the last six to 12 months, and uh, their views of it being um, substantially more effective than placebo were a lot higher than you would see among those who didn't. And then this theory, it's not well described, like you said, well studied yet, but but certainly raising a concern in the clinical trial work around the challenges we have with masking, the hype, and what that does to um potentially alter effect sizes
1: um well, by masking do you mean your placebo effects or a, a yeah placebo like how drug? hard
2: it is how hard it is to really blind a trial so so the facilitators will know yeah
1: oh oh yeah yeah like you know 99% of the time the facilitator mm-hmm. Well, or you know close anyway um Well, you know, that's an important question. And I think, you know, there's a simple solution, but, you know, I could be completely off base. Uh, You know, the simple solution is, you know, forget about a placebo condition. Uh, you, You know, just compare, you know, the treatment, you know, with a psychedelic and the treatment without a psychedelic
0: yeah or waitlist controls or or you know. waitlist
1: controls you know because if you give you know like a drug for a, a placebo uh when you know, like ritalin you, you know that's an altered state of consciousness mm-hmm. you, you know so you're not comparing you know uh you know, psilocybin with with placebo you're comparing your psilocybin to ritalin and you know the same with benadryl as a placebo you know, that's an antihistamine, anticholinergic. You feel kind of weird. Uh, you know, so that's an altered state as well. You know, so you're comparing your two altered states. You know, rather than you know the altered, uh, you know, rather than you know, psilocybin, uh, uh, you know, compared to no psilocybin. Um, you know, so I think it would just be you know, more clear cut.
0: Yeah, the idea of an active active placebo with psychedelic trials is a little bit bizarre, I guess, when you when you look at it that way
1: yeah yeah does that make sense because mm-hmm. yeah that's a you know horse i'm you know flogging a bit these days <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah it it totally does, and there are so many issues there, like when maps started their m d. m a studies uh per the i r b and and f. d a recommendations, they had a little tiny dose as their active placebo, but people got worse in that group than they did. With just the placebo, because of the overactivation without fear reduction, or whatever the the mechanism is, but but if only the FDA would go for what you're talking about in terms of the bar needed to get these things out there, because yeah, I agree with you this uh, as a clinical trialist, this whole uh, field is bringing up so many interesting questions and challenges of of how to how to do these studies in the right way and how to measure things. <laughs>
1: yeah you know, when you're designing studies you know does the f d a require a placebo control of a drug or a low dose of the study drug
2: well uh it seems that traditionally the the standard for getting it past that you know finish line is a phase three multi site um placebo randomized placebo controlled and um and uh, there may be use cases where that's been challenged challenged or not appropriate but but i know that's uh kind of the assumption that the drug development companies doing psychedelic work are operating and under and but we don't have any approvals to speak of yet right like the the ketamine studies uh on the path to to uh, S-ketamine and Spravato's approval were medazolam, like you were saying, which has an, an altered state of consciousness. And, um, and that reminds me, there was one part in your book that I really found interesting in the psychological effects when you reference uh, Sasha Shulgin and how he talked about three kinds of psychoactive drugs, the up ones, the down, and then the psychedelics were a star substances. And I I just thought that was a fun way of categorizing it.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. That was great. Yeah.
0: You know, we're talking about placebos and, um, this mind manifesting quality that psychedelics have. And I wonder if you've given, I think you may have mentioned this in the book, but, um, and maybe that's why it's in my head, but if you've given some thought to what is going on with the so-called placebo effect? Like, what's what what's going on in the human mind or soul that makes these changes, these observable and felt and very real changes, that in a study we might say are just the mind or whatever?
1: Well, yeah, it's a very strange thing. Um, you know, placebo occurs completely behind the scenes. Uh, it's a conversion of you know something you know mental into something biological. Hmm. Um, you believe or you feel or you have certain experiences and you know, then that begins a cascade of, of, you know, healing new mechanisms, immunological endorphins, cannabinoids, steroids, um, you know, functional you know, connectivity, all those things occur you know, biologically once you've had a particular experience. And, um, yeah, it's this very strange gap because it occurs completely out of awareness. Um, you, you, might have a you know, particular experience, but the conversion or, you know, the point at which the, uh, it's, you know, the mental, you know, contents, you know, precipitate or activate this, you know, cascade of, you know, biological ones, it's, it's mysterious. Um, and I think, you know, that may, you know, turn out to be the most important thing about psychedelics is because if you look at studies or surveys or case reports you know psychedelics uh, 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 you know they do everything um but both you know good and bad but you know mostly you know the emphasis is on good things now you know helps your meditation depression substance abuse eating disorders yeah it just is this huge list i gave a talk to you uh, yesterday, and it's this long list on my slide. It's just you know too small a you know, print to you know put on one slide. Um, y- y- you know, so in a way, uh, you know, psychedelics are you know, panaceas, and you know, panaceas work vis a vis the placebo effect. You know, the placebo. You know, like if you, uh, you translate placebo, it is. Uh, i will please uh, you know so you know depending on the set and the setting your intent the expectations the support of those around you um you'll you'll go into this the state uh with a certain you know, set like you know what you want to happen um and you know, then it happens you know, biologically your know, rating scales functional connectivity yeah, you know, so that I think occurs you know, via the placebo effect. You know, so I think you know psychedelics will be key in understanding or you know bridging that very small gap between subjective state and you know the placebo response or you know the biological response that that you know, follows thereafter.
0: Is that that mind-body gap you talk about in the book, like bridging that mind-body gap?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the explanatory gap uh and th- you know it, it wouldn't be that hard um to begin studying that question uh for example you could look at your know, suggestibility in your clients or your um or your patients on that baseline and you see if more suggestible patients uh you have a greater outcome you know you like a better outcome and you could just you know give a Uh, like a a screening tool for suggestibility you you know the other would would um would be i'm assuming or you know believing or you know hypothesizing you know that placebo responsive conditions would you know would be more responsive to psychedelics than, you know, non-placebo responsive conditions. You know, so like asthma, skin diseases, anxiety, palpitations. You know, those kinds of things would would respond. You know, more as compared to you know cancer or bone pain, or you know you know structural you know heart disease. Those kinds of things. So I think you know those are you know two. You know, relatively simple research avenues, which could be pursued.
2: So, Rick, that reminds me of something I read in your book, semi-related. When you quote the saying about psychedelics that they're often described as more real than real, (laughs) and that's a a fun, puzzling statement to ponder. And wondering, um, what does more real than real mean, and why is that the case? Do you think on psychedelics?
0: Was it portentousness or something like that? I forget what the term was.
1: Yeah, yeah, portentousness or portentousness. yeah, portentous uh, like the magnificence, uh, the like incomprehensibly, incomprehensibly intense. Uh, yeah, it was, well, um, you know, that was a you know, common refrain of the DMT volunteers was they came back and they said that felt more real than real. Um, you know, which is a very strange, you know, declaration, and it was quite common. Um, I'd say the, I I don't know, vast majority, but it could be the vast majority of uh, the volunteers described it that way. So what that seems to indicate is one of two things. Uh, Well, first of all, and this is inarguable, is, is it's a result of the effect of DMT on the brain uh yeah so you know that suggests that you know that there's some you know circuit or some you know center in the brain which you regulates the feeling of reality you know that's one way to explain it you know the other is a little more far-fetched you know which is you know dmt you know takes away the veil you enter into the more you know real uh universe like the blue pill and the red pill, like, you know, things are unmasked. You know, the more, you know, reasonable explanation is it's an effect on the brain, which, you know, regulates, you know, the feeling of reality. You know, so that, you know, you know, leads to the question of, you know, naturally occurring DMT. You know, there is endogenous, you know, DMT in the mammalian brain, and the concentrations are as high as those for serotonin and of dopamine, You know, these were you know, some data which you know, came out the last year or two from the University of Michigan. You know, so those high concentrations, oh, and concentrations increase in the visual cortex in the dying animal as well. You know, so, you know, those, um, you know, that evidence, you know, suggests you know, that there is a DMT uh, uh, neurotransmitter system in the mammalian brain. And you'd have to wonder, you know, what's it responsible for? Well, you know, you could say, well, it's responsible, for, you know, for regulating our you know, sense of reality. Uh, if increases occur, you know, for whatever reason, you know, things become psychedelic, which could you know, lead to psychosis if you're not prepared. Or if the, you know, levels are quite low, you know, things are depressed, depressing, flat yeah you know, so that's you know one theory as you know to what is the role of endogenous uh d m t and is there a neurotransmit uh and is there a neuro uh neurotransmitter system you know, which uses it um and you know what regulates it
2: yeah that uh that makes sense and um what you said you mentioned psychosis and that's another thing that stood out to me in the book is i think you said. Something that I really liked, the drugs themselves don 't produce psychosis any more than they produce spiritual experience. they simply interact with the mind of the person taking them, and you know like i I think that 's really well well put and wonder if you can expand on a little on the how those states arise like that that uh paper about psilocybin occasioning mystical experiences is a nice term or what you've described in your dmt studies uh, and also what happens sometimes when things go badly and psychosis arises
1: um if you emphasize that you know the drugs are you know working on the individual person in a particular time and place uh, I think it allows for a lot more, you know, leeway in the kinds of experiences you know that people have. You know, so um, you know, you know, but um, on the other hand, if you believe you know that the drugs have an uh, an invariant effect, you know, they're entheogenic, for example, or they're you know psychotomimetic. You know, then you're you know, kind of expecting certain things to happen. You convey that you know to the person that you're with, you know. So um, I think, you know, to emphasize the role on a certain setting, uh, it uh, you know reduces the you know, tendency to attribute inherent you know properties you know to the drugs themselves, other than just amplifying what's already there. You know so you know, depending what you call the drug or what you're you know telling people to expect, you know that is going to impact you know like you know, for example, there is um, a DMT study came out of Germany, I think two thousand five. and you know, normal volunteers, uh, but the model was you know the psychotomimetic model. You know they were interested in seeing if you know DMT you know caused you know symptoms of psychosis. That's what they told the volunteers. And they gave them schizophrenia rating scales, and lo and behold, high scores on schizophrenia rating scales. So, um, mm. you know, it isn't like, you know, the drug makes you holy or the drug makes you diabolic. It's, you know, the drug is working on, you know, who you are. Uh, so it's, you know, just a drug. Um, it isn't a spirit, it's not an angel, uh, mm-hmm. you know it's just a drug and it's working on, you know, who you are, you know, you could think of them as spirits and angels, but they're still, it's still working on, on, you know, who you are. So it can't work on anything else.
2: So in a slight tangent there, how does that apply to salvia, which has a little bit of time in your handbook. And I think you mentioned either in an interview or in the book that there's more commonly a feeling of catastrophe, that can accompany it and you know certainly people have there are things like pcp salvia where uh things can be more dysphoric more commonly and um so is it both the chemical even though it's not an angel or a demon the chemical propensity to push someone that way if the set and setting are prime for it
1: um you know, it's a very strange drug. I've um, I've got the book here, um, and I'm you know, looking at what I wrote: effects and side effects. Yeah. So you know, changing in body image are common. Merging with objects in the environment through sensations of stretching, spreading, or dissolving. One may not be able to communicate or move. In- entrance into a hallucinatory world, wherein one encounters entities or beings yeah yeah so here's this strange thing about salvia it may not be possible to distinguish uh you know the drug effects from what is taking place in the real world and one may attempt to interact you know physically with uh, you know with hallucinated objects you know so you know that isn't you know typical of the classical you know compounds like lsd psilocybin dmt you know you've taken a drug you know, and with, you know, salvia, you don't, you kind of are not sure. And it's mm-hmm. like, I smoked, you know, too much, you know, salvia, you know, when it first was discovered to be smokable and, uh, you, you know, I, I smoked it and, uh, then things in the room, uh, started changing, uh, in, in a really you know, bad way. And, uh, uh, like I was not like, you know, having a visual effects, like, you know, visions, eyes closed, mm-hmm. you know, the you know, DMT-like uh, content. It it was, you know, this you know big hole opened up in my ceiling. And this, you know, 40-foot man with brown pants and a brown bowler cap you <laughs> looked down at me and said, it, it's time to go now. And uh, I start, you know, dissolving into his pants. And, you know, my wife is, you know, sitting there, and I'm looking over at her, <laughs> and I'm, you know, looking out the window, and it's like what is going on is this really happening and it was really happening and i was just terrified and you know, mm-hmm. you, you know thankfully you know things were going well uh in the marriage and she just you know sat there quietly and you called <laughs> my friend and said "You know, what do i do um yeah yeah you know so you know but you know there are you know people that really like salvia um and it isn't dysphoric at all i think it's you know, kind of like ketamine, you know, some people just love ketamine, uh, and others just don't like it at all, you know, so I think with, you know, salvia, you know, you know, this is like, you know, this isn't a, you know, formal study, uh, you know, but it you know, seems like, you know, those who like, uh, 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 you know, ketamine also like salvia uh and it's been it's been you know, uh it's been studied um i'm not sure if it's if it's being studied as a psychotherapeutic agent or not you may know more about that you know but you know user beware uh, it's a you know very strange kind of substance
0: you know these these individual differences fascinate me so much because it you know, the Western medical approach to so-called mental illness wants it to be clear and discreet, right? We want there to be an identified mental illness that we treat with a particular treatment and it resolves it. Like you might resolve a bacterial infection with antibiotics, but you know, the human mind is much more interesting than that. And I think psychedelics, as much as they are ways to treat or heal or the mind are also ways to explore human consciousness um, as the, when I hear you describing the salvia experience, and then, you know, making the point that for some people that medicine works really, really well, and others don't, and I hear you talking about the sensitivity to mindset and to setting that these psychedelic experiences have, um, it's no wonder we have a hard time studying them with <laughs> sort of the empir- standard empirical scientific method.
1: Well, uh, uh, well, so why do you say that? Um, I think th- th- that um you know, that they can be studied.
0: Yeah, I don't think it's impossible. I think it's just probably. I think I say that because it seems harder to operationalize certain variables in psychology generally than it would be in physics or chemistry. Like it, it's. Hard to say. This is what we think love is, or self love is, and we're going to measure it with these tools. And these tools are usually self report questionnaires or something like that. So hard that makes repl, uh, replication difficult. People talk about the replication crisis in mental health research. Um, but also, like I said, just the individual differences. You give ketamine to somebody who's been diagnosed with with major depressive disorder. You do your best to control for setting. Um, and for you know the the model use the therapist use to to support the person and person A and person B can have wildly different experiences.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, that extends even uh, you know to uh, you know reports that I get you know, periodically from you know, people who describe you know no effect from smoking DMT or you know, mm-hmm. know no effect from mm-hmm. a big dose of LSD and uh, I've always been curious about that um, one of our volunteers was a person like that we, we gave him a full dose of DMT and he looked around and said well have you given me the injection yet wow. uh, there was no change in his mind you know and there was in, and there was no uh, increase in his you know, blood pressure either you know which was usually an indication of the intensity of the subjective effect uh and i think you know we're starting to understand you know that uh in terms of you know, polymorphisms within the serotonin you know, 2a receptor you know with like you know very very small mutations which you know, have no effect you know most of the time you know, result in a lack of sensitivity to psychedelics uh and I've written, you know, Brian Roth at UNC in North Carolina because he's, you know, the one that's, you know, doing the most interesting work along these lines and asked him, you know, could you, you know, look at know, blood samples from these people who, you know, write me occasionally, you know, so maybe at some point, you know, we'll have a better understanding at least with respect to inter-individual, you know, differences in response to psychedelics.
2: Yeah, we see that in clinic with ketamine. We see it in in psychedelic studies to a certain extent. Even though we're all supposed to be blinded, and you know, we certainly hear it from a lot of people's reports coming up at a conference and saying, "I I took five grams of psilocybin or magic mushrooms and didn't feel anything," and then I took more and more. And besides the receptor kind of variability, do you think? there are other things going on like the the walls of resistance the 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 narrative of of i don't feel anything i guess that's one question and then i'm also curious on the perspective you hear like uh in ram das talks about when he gave lsd to his guru and his guru was beyond lsd and those kind of ideas yeah
1: yeah um well the first uh yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I believed that story, or I was impressed by that story. Uh, and uh, was, you know, in, you know, well, you know, that was one of the implicit questions, you know, that I brought to bear on the research, you know, was, you know, are the more enlightened people in this study going to be, you know, less responsive to DMT because, you know, they're already producing DMT and, their responsiveness, you know, to, um, outside administration would be less. Um, you know, but the guy that had, you know, zero response was completely ordinary in a, in a good way. I mean, he worked full time, he swam, he had a lot of friends, you know, went out drinking, you never meditated a day in his life. Uh, you know, so, you know, there went that theory. (laughs) Uh, I think it's, yeah i think it's more of a you know biological polymorphism than uh anything spiritual uh yeah. you know although you know, we used to tease them and say oh you're enlightened but you don't know it uh, but mm-hmm. you know it didn't really make a difference
2: yeah well maybe we could chat about uh spirituality for a moment because i know that's a part of your book and and beforehand you mentioned another book that you've written on the topic and and Steve and I both uh, are both are deeply interested and and you know committed to exploring this more, and it's how it applies to mental health and psychedelics. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, you're referring to my 2014 book DMT and the Solar yeah, Prophecy. That yes, mm-hmm. that one with Alex Gray's art on on the cover. Love it. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well. Um, I wrote that book for a couple of reasons. You know, one was that you know the DMT experience was not what I was expecting it to be. Um, I expected the DMT experience you know, to be you know formless, like a you know, Zen Kensho or Satori effect. You know, there there wouldn't be any self, there wouldn't be any perceptions, there wouldn't be any th- many thoughts, uh, there wouldn't be any time or space. And, you know, that was not the case. Only one of the, you know, 55 volunteers or so had that kind of experience. Uh, and it was, you know, somebody, you know, that was a religious studies major in college and had been, and had been studying, you know, mystical unit of, you know, consciousness his whole life and was hoping that, you know, he would have that kind of experience in the study. And you know, he was the only you know, one who did. Everybody else's experiences you know, were interactive and relational, but still they felt more real than real. That they had a spiritual quality about them. So when I um, started to you know, you know when I began to look at other models for you know for um, spirituality that describe states you know similar you know to the DMT one uh i thought you know that would be interesting to explore and you know through a number of you know uh you know, circumstances i returned you know to the hebrew bible uh in my early 40s i'm uh, after a long stint uh, studying you know, training uh within a zen tradition um and the more um, i read of the hebrew bible or the so-called old testament uh you know the more as impressed with this you know, phenomenon of prophecy, the prophetic state, which is you know, totally psychedelic. If you open chapter one of Ezekiel, it is, comp- it's, it's, it's a description of, uh, of a DMT experience, uh, that there's angels with wings and eyes on their wings. There's fire. There's ice. There's wind. It's just com- completely psychedelic. Uh, and, you know, that was a lot more, Consonant with the DMT effect, so I started making a comparison between the two states, uh, and they were quite strong, which then led me to um, propose a role for naturally occurring DMT in the experiences described by anyone uh, encountering spiritual realms within the Hebrew Bible. Um, You know, the other is you know to counter you know the narrative you know that these are mystical mimetic drugs or they produce mystical experiences y- mystical experiences very complex you know, phenomenon uh and i think it's m- more accurate within the research you know world uh you know to in- instead of saying you you know that they had mystical experiences i think it would be you know, more truthful to say you know high scores on the mystical experience questionnaire, which are completely different phenomena. Um, and the kinds of uh, your qualities of the unitive mystical state are not what most people have uh, when they trip. Um, and so using a you know, Buddhist model, let's say, or a you know, new age kind of model for y- unitive um, mystical experiences, would not be all that useful for most of what occurs when most of us trip. A more interactive relational platform might be more useful. So, you know, that kind of was, you know, where I, you know, you took, you know, the thinking, you know, was that, you know, there's alternative spiritual views, you know, to the counter, you know, to the prevailing one, you yeah, it, it also uh, bespeaks the importance of respecting or coming from the religious or spiritual perspective of your patient, um, mm-hmm. as opposed to imposing a you know, secular religion or, you know, this is the underlying foundation of all religions, and if you have this experience, it just confirms what you already you know, believe in, in your heart of hearts, you know, that isn't always true. So I think as opposed to imposing a particular view of spirituality, you know, which is universal, um, it might be more helpful in your choice of music, in your way of interpreting the experience and the kind of iconography in the room, uh, you know, to you know, delve you know, more deeply in, uh, into the specifics of the person's religious or spiritual beliefs, not just uh, a global, abstract, uh, unitive perspective.
2: Yeah, I agree completely. Um, And I've always been curious uh, what you're talking about with endogenous DMT. Um, uh, One theory I've seen from older studies, not even the psychedelic literature, like the serotonin receptor binding activity that's so variable among humans uh, correlates with uh, in some studies hard to study albeit it, some studies correlates with the ability to have a, a spiritual experience or spiritual zeal if you will and i um, wondering how you make sense of the mechanism across psychedelics uh, versus other spiritual states versus ketamine perhaps
1: um yeah that study you're referring to I'm not familiar with that you know, people with a certain subtype of serotonin receptor are more spiritual
2: uh, I think it was just a receptor density this is um the the only one uh top of mind is like over 10 years old American journal of psychiatry that's just the receptor density the 5HT I think it was even a 1A study in fact but but uh, correlated there was a, with some kind of uh, spiritual questionnaire, like some of the differences on it. Hmm,
1: that's interesting. Um, yeah, well, it's the question of you know what is an endogenous, uh, an, you know, DMT doing in the mammalian brain. Um, yeah. So, it you could be in, involved with spirituality if you are you prone to spiritual you know kinds of issues you know that mm-hmm. well you know would these people who are more spiritual you know you know would they also answer a you know sociopathy you know questionnaire with you know, high scores as well you know so mm-hmm. um you know it depends on you know the questionnaire as much as anything uh, yeah. It you know, could be that, you know, people with, for example, more sensitivity to naturally occurring DMT, you know, they may be more convinced of their beliefs um, because uh, of the, um, you know, the, you know, the hyper real, uh, you know, quality of the DMT experience. Um, you know, so, you know, what are those beliefs? Well, that comes down to set. You know, what do they read? You know, who did they mm-hmm. hang out with? Uh, you know, what's their you know general you know, frame of mind? So, um, it you know, could be that you know higher you know, density just means you're more um, intensely involved with you know, various things.
2: Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. And any other tips for uh, um, like clinicians like us, or or anyone for that matter, on how to weave? Kind of that uh, spiritual into the work, into the integration, into clinical work, even.
1: Um, well, you know, some volunt- or you know, some patients, you may have no interest in that. You know, so you you wouldn't want to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, emphasize, you know, something that they don't. Um, you know, but you know, lots of people you know, describe, you know, particular. You know, you, you know, particular elements of, you know, psychedelic experience as s- uh, spiritual. You, you might be out of body, you, you might be euphoric, you might have new ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, those are just, you know, like, you know, features of the state. They're, you know, they're not necessarily, you know, spiritual or not. Uh, you know, some people, you know, frame those kinds of effects as spiritual. Uh, you know so you want to you know know what they're talking about like um if you were out of body you know what would that be like for you um or you know what do you believe happens after death or uh mm-hmm. you know do you believe in god is he jesus uh you know uh, so you know those or you know do you meditate um uh, do you believe in past lives things like that you know so you know uh it would be skilled clinical interviewing. Uh you would but you know, mm-hmm. but you would know you know what to ask or you know to what to or you know what to be on you know the lookout for.
2: Yeah, and um you had mentioned your past in kind of Zen traditions and um meditation experiences. Uh I think I've heard you mention that that uh was formative for you, of course, and understandably along the this path, wondering because I've heard that from other um, you know people I um, read from and follow, admire in the space. I'm wondering a little more about that. What was it about meditation that that piqued interest and uh, and do you see that as well that showing up as a common theme among some some colleagues and in getting into this work
1: um. Yeah, well, you know, the overlap uh, between things which occurred as a result of certain kinds of meditation with descriptions of, you know, the psychedelic effect, uh, you know, I, I uh, you know, noted that, you know, similarity um, in college, <laughs> uh, and mm-hmm. I thought hmm, there must be some, you know, biological, you know, basis for both, your meditative altered states and, you know, drug-induced altered states, and that, you know, was what, you got me on this path in the first place. Um, yeah, like, uh, even though I, you know, put that theory, you know, forth, I had no experience, um, with meditation. Um, I learned, you know, TM as a college student, but mm-hmm. I didn't, you know, take that very far. Um, you know, so, it's a you know, bit of a convoluted story. I'll try to make it brief. Um, yeah, I started medical school, and I got really, I got really depressed. I, I completely became unmoored. Uh, and I dropped out of school, and I ended up at a Zen temple. Um, and they presented a worldview that resonated with my flashes of insight on psychedelics. And mm-hmm. I just felt like I had come to my spiritual home. I was 22 years old. Um, and I learned Zen practice or at least, you know, the rudiments. Um, yeah. And it saved my life, but there's just, you know, no two ifs, ands, or buts about that. Um, and I stayed within the stream of that, you know, particular organization for over 20 years. Um, and it influenced, you know, my research as well. Um, you know, how you you sit for sessions or, you know, for, you know, for experiences you enter a light you meditative state but still you're quite responsive to what's around you um i also um was approaching the uh experiences of my volunteers using that spiritual platform um and the questionnaire i developed was based on my buddhist psychological principles as well and I was expecting yeah, Kenchos, you know, and the volunteers were too, these unitive states, uh, but they were quite rare. Um, yeah, you know, so uh, the work on the DMT book um, you know, coincided with my ending the relationship with his Zen community, and it was over the question of psychedelics, you know, could you know, psychedelics inform somehow or another Buddhist practice? And that kind of severed our ties.
2: Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, And go ahead, Steve. I think you might have been ready to chime in. I lost my train of thought. (laughs) Well, it's okay.
0: I was, I was going to lead a train down a different track because I'm, I'm curious, Rick, as somebody who's been who started the DMT research so long ago and who's had an eye on, um, you know, the growing psychedelic industry, you write this psychedelic handbook. What, um, what do you think about the way psychedelics are being studied about uh, the companies that are being formed around psychedelic medicine, around public opinion? Uh, I would love to just your, your, your wise worldview here, given the, the, the time that you've been in this, doing this work.
1: Yeah. Um, well, if you, if, if, if um, if you know, the truth be told, you know, one of my spurs, or you, you know, one of the spurs, you know, for writing the handbook, was the Michael Pollan's book. Hmm. Um, it's you know taken as gospel by you know somebody without the background that I've got, and I thought, you know, let's get real. You know, let's mm-hmm. like you know discuss these drugs, pros, cons, their biology, uh, you know, adverse effects. You know, side effects, the history, the perspective. So, um, you know, it's, it, it's interesting if you, um, you know, there was that, you know, airline pilot who took, you know, psilocybin, uh, you know, two right. days before trying to like, you know, crash a plane, uh, he was completely dissociated. Um, you know, so I, I think, uh, that those kinds of, you know, rosy, um, narratives are going to start to bump up against, you know, the results of what they've been proposing, which is to increase, you know, the accessibility, you know, so more people are going to be taking more drugs to, or more, you know, psychedelics, you know, to experience a mystical state for their depression to remit, to to stop drinking. And there's going to be some catastrophes. Um, So I, I was interested in a more, you know, grounded, uh, presentation of the material.
0: Yeah. And I think you, I mean, at least by my reading, I think you accomplished that. Like I was saying earlier in the conversation, um, this isn't a journalist's take on psychedelics, right? This is a scientist's and a clinician's take on psychedelics. And so it is indeed a handbook as opposed to a storytelling. I mean, you have, you give context, of course, personal context and research context and historical context, but, um, I think it's very accessible and needed, and I really appreciate the n- rather neutral stance you take. Right? You, I think you even describe neither being an advocate nor an adversary for psychedelics. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. The you know the goal um, of the book was to educate, mm-hmm. you know, rather than to advocate or you know, rail against.
0: And so, speaking of education, if if you had to design a training program. For fledgling psychedelic therapists, uh, what kinds of things would you want to put into such a program? So, yeah, just to reiterate the question, Rick, um, if, if you could design sort of, or if, if, if you're going to consider training, clinicians who are using psychedelic tools, what kinds of things, I mean, you've got a handbook, right? Maybe they read the handbook, but like what what kind of things do you think are top priority uh, that maybe the general listener who's familiar with psychedelics or is a therapist might might not
1: be obvious to them? Um, well, I think you want to train people to be good psychotherapists. <clears throat> yeah. uh, and especially when it comes to like deep work, like, you know, regressed states. Um, you know, so that I think is the most important um you, you know the you know the more practical element, you know theoretically, I mean, you could teach whatever you wanted, I guess the psychology, the pharmacology, you know the religious use, you know the indigenous use, uh you know things like that you know, but you know um, <clears throat> you know, but ultimately, I think if there's going to be an effective training, they need to be good you know, psychotherapists, you know like you know working at a deep level.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. In fact, I say, I often say the exact same thing when people ask me that question. And, um, and of course, like you've, like you emphasized earlier in the conversation, education about set and setting and uh, the different drugs and dosages and all that stuff maybe goes without saying. But yeah, I think that the, there's a lot of excitement around psychedelic tools and their possibility to help people with mental health conditions. And if, if, If MDMA gets FDA approved, I think there's going to be a lot of interest and demand.
1: Well, you know, one interesting part, you like, you know, know, that's what everybody's emphasizing, like, you know, FDA approved. Sure. Yeah. But but what about the DEA? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Still schedule one drug.
0: Yeah. Aren't there some, some provisions in place where it gets automatically rescheduled? And And maybe that's by state. I don't remember.
1: I hadn't heard that. It might be true, which, which would be easy. FDA mm-hmm. approves it, and it gets rescheduled. Yeah, I, I just don't know. You, you know, my understanding, or you know, what I think is going on is it's still schedule one, and it will remain schedule one, unless you know, you know, the DEA changes its mind.
0: Yeah, I think there are a few states who've put legislation in place just in anticipation of this, and again, I could be wrong. A simple Google would solve oh, our problem well, here, but
1: yeah, uh, that's very clever. Yeah, interesting.
0: Yeah. Where it's automatically gets rescheduled if the if the f d a approves it as a treatment
1: yeah, and you know there's you know legal marijuana all around the country, and there's legal psilocybin, mm-hmm. you know so you know the d a is not like you know stepping in uh yeah. and enforcing anything
2: low law enforcement at, at, at the state level that is mhm mhm. So, another question i had and and maybe heading towards winding down, even though we would love to pick your brain on this stuff forever is uh uh in your book, the Handbook, I love how you um talk about preparation like and we we like to look at and really focus that uh but you break it down into long term and short term prep and and intentions, and I guess my question is around um this saying i think that's from alan watts when you get the message hang up the phone or how do you know um when to go seek out these substances when to stop going back um when is enough enough uh how do you view it in terms of the work towards being better humans
1: well, I think you need to have some kind of benchmark, and you know that you're working with. You know, like, am I approaching or am I receding from my aspirations? You know, you know, like you, you know, how you would like your life to be, and you know that could be within the context of ongoing psychotherapy, which I think is better, you know, than a spiritual kind of tradition, although you know, that can be quite helpful too. you know, science uh, slash psychotherapy isn't, you know, quite the same as, you know, religion itself, which is more, uh, you know, interested in maintaining the doctrine, uh, as opposed to, you know, changing, you know, the doctrine, um, you know so you're know, some kind of you know, benchmark uh you know that's you know when you might start that might be you know when you stop you, you, you know we were talking about you know psychoanalysis you know so i entered psychoanalysis after i had been a member of a psychedelic study group uh, for a number of years and i was having the same trip no matter you know what you know substance that we were trying and mm-hmm. it was just just the same trip it was it started to, to get old, and it wasn't really you know, cracking at all, you know. So, um, you know, that's when I started psychoanalysis. Actually, was I'm you know done taking psychedelics, you know, because I think I can work on this material better, you know, psychotherapeutically. Uh, you know, Alan Watson, that if you've you know seen or if you've opened the door, yeah, just walk through it and close it behind you. Uh, you know, uh, I don't think that's the case most of the time. Uh, Like I smoked DMT, you know, really only once, and you know, for me, that you know that adage was true. Like I was really impressed, uh, and you know, have been pursuing it since. Um, But but, you know, but I think you know there are other, you know, there are other times that you do want to you, I'm either revisit that space and look at your life from that perspective. Uh, or you have a problem that you need solving. Um, you know, so I think for, you know, for most of us, most of the time, you know, one experience won't do it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And, um, kind of a related question is, um, do you feel like early psychedelic experiences, say your first or second trip ever, um, are those more potentially profound, transformative as like maybe this term way showers than your 100th trip? Or um, have you seen that in people of them becoming less useful uh, due to some kind of repetition?
1: Uh, What's that term?
2: Uh, Well, psychedelics has way showers. Like they show you the path, then you just gotta get on it and do the work.
1: Way showers. And you might go
2: back and it might show you the path again. And that might just keep showing up in theory until you do the work
1: well uh, you know I, yeah like I was you know thinking about that term you know uh, you know way showers and i was I kind of spaced out the other part of your question. Could you, you know, go back
2: yeah, do early experiences um seem to be more profound and potentially transformative than like frequent repetitive ones
1: yeah well well you know clearly the first time you take enough of you know whatever is the first time it's quite novel it's very novel uh and i think you're imprinted in in a way like if your first experience was was you know completely awesome uh you'll be more Mm. inclined to get more out of your future experiences uh so um you know the baseline the the first you know it's like you know, the first time you know could be the best or or the most important I think the first time's probably the most important if if it's great, then it leads you in one direction if it's bad, it kind of leads you in another um you know but you know clearly they're the most novel you know the first time or two um you know, you know, there's compulsive use of anything. There's compulsive use of, 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 uh, you know, ketamine and of psychedelics, um, in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, five methoxy is interesting in that way. I've known you know, too. Well, you know, one psychiatrist, you know, one psychologist who, like, once they started smoking a you five know, methoxy DMT, they just smoked it over and over and over again. They just, you know, wanted to, you know, go back into the white light. Um, mm-hmm. you, you know, so you can abuse and use, you know, psychedelics compulsively. You know, but I think, um, yeah, like it's been years, well, not years. It has been years. It's been years since I've even taken anything. It's usually just a medium ayahuasca dose. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. so I you know, had my huge experiences back when I, in my 20s and 30s. Um, but, you know, but after a while, you have other things you'd rather do. Um, you'd, you'd rather hike or you'd rather hang out or, uh, you just don't feel like it. So, um, I think you said in setting like, you know, how your life is progressing.
2: Yeah. I like that. Uh, having a problem, a problem may arise or a question that brings you there or, um, like you talk about in your, in your book, clarifying intention, I think is maybe an important, uh, way to summarize it.
1: Yeah. You know, I won't recommend this, you know, that you do it at home, you know, but, uh, you know, for a number of years, if I was confronting a particularly, you know, thorny question, um, I would drink ayahuasca and I, and, uh, and I would lay on the couch with a, you know, with a writing pad and my pen. Um, and I would, you know, come to some solution and it was a great solution and it, it would last x amount of time a year two three and uh you know but then it would change you know depending on the circumstances
2: yeah you know, cool. but
1: uh you know it can be quite useful that way
0: yeah i'm so curious about that the, the the ways other ways to use psychedelics apart from as therapeutic agents right there's creative catalysts um ways to help you solve problems because like you were saying earlier. Um, Some might believe that you're consulting an oracle, that the entities that you're meeting on DMT are in the astral plane and you're contacting angels and whatever. But it Uh, might also just be that one of the reasons you're having trouble with your recalcitrant depression or your particularly sticky problem is that your brain is just sort of repeating a pattern. And if you can take a medicine or a drug or a chemical that shifts the way that your brain functions, maybe you come to novel solutions
1: right right uh, and you know uh you could study creativity scientifically um and uh, you know Oz janiger was a psychiatrist in la uh back in the day he, he studied creativity he has a lot of paintings you know from painters who you know tripped on lsd and their you know painting you know, changed radically um yeah and I think there's some Swiss work as well you know looking on my creativity yeah it's an underutilized area or it's an understudied area yeah you know that's you know probably the you know the most helpful you know for me these days is uh you know to help solve you know, problems you know like you know, cognitive or emotional problems that aren't uh, resolving
2: and why would you gravitate towards uh, say uh ayahuasca rather than smoked or inhaled DMT, just a, a personal curiosity for the, those problem-solving uh, expeditions.
1: Well, you know, this may sound a little flaky, but it just it, 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 it seems to me that, you know, there is, a, there is some kind of innate intelligence contained in ayahuasca. It just mm-hmm. feels that way. And I, I like that feeling and I trust it and I want to avail myself of it. So... Um, that's why uh, you know ayahuasca uh, is it at this point.
0: Yeah. So in in ayahuasca in particular, not in just the DMT molecule.
1: Right, right. Yeah, yeah. The combination of the plants is it's you know, synergistic. It isn't you know simply an addition of their effects, but they you know, really mingle. Um, you know, there's you know the you know, physical part and the emotional part and the perceptual part. They're all quite powerful.
0: Yeah, Reed and I talked about um, we t- talked about ayahuasca ceremonies quite a bit on the show and and one of the phrases I keep bringing up is this idea of a shared ordeal that that people experience in group psychedelic journeys and, and other you know non psychedelic group work but also specific with ayahuasca just because of the the tendency toward purging whether it be vomiting or crying or laughing or whatever it is mm-hmm. Um and you know you're not that's really not as on the menu quite as much with smoked or vaporized d m t
1: um yeah, yeah well you, you know the duration is much longer uh yeah, yeah, yeah and there's purging um you know the group ordeal, yeah, it's like you know being you know one of the Hebrews who just escaped Egypt and wandering in the wilderness you know forty years um it's a group ordeal uh you, you're you know, so, um um your, um your solidarity is enhanced and uh you 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 really you know, feel you know like you're part um of something you know that everyone shares
0: mm mm-hmm. hmm read any other questions for rick before uh before we let him go
2: one one more if you don't mind just because i when i learned about your book called joseph levy escapes death um i got really intrigued and wonder if you could give us just a sneak preview brief summary of that uh for uh myself and anyone else who might want to mix it up and dive into that next
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's pretty dark but it's pretty darn funny if you ask me still i'll open it up and i'll chuckle um (laughs) you know yeah uh 2014 i you know, had a bad tooth and ended up on steroids and I took a trip I shouldn't have I came back with pneumonia and uh mm. almost knew, like it was bad. It was bad pneumonia, like in both lungs. Uh yeah. Um wow. and after that <laughs> I came I, I came down with you know, C. diff like this this super diarrhea, like super Ooh. killer, wow. diabolic diarrhea for six weeks. Um yeah, mm. and I swore if I live I'm gonna write about this um yeah you know so <laughs> um, i did i invented a fictional character uh joseph levy um yeah and everything which occurs you know to that you know, character occurred to me and everything which that character you know thought i thought um uh, but still it's, it's a you know, caricature of me you know hopefully i'm a nicer guy it's really snarky uh but um <laughs> you, you know i just went for it i figured uh is a story I'll tell and I'll, you know, tell it, you know, from that perspective.
2: Very cool. What's been the reception like to writing
1: that? Oh, some people hate it. They really think I'm <laughs> like a racist and a misogynist and all that. So, but, mm. but you know, most people like it. Uh, it, it it's, it's a bit, uh, you know, Bukowski like, uh, like I went through a you know, phase in my 30s. I just like devoured, you know, Bukowski's writings. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've always you know, kind of you know, kept that in the back of my mind as a, you know, kind of as a well, it's you know like Woody Allen meets Bukowski, yeah. um, you know, it's it, it kind of you know dark but you know funny too.
0: We've piqued my interest. uh sarcastic, sardonic, dark sense of humor is uh, yeah, it's I love it
1: in spades yeah. yeah yeah and you know this current you know book which uh, i you know, submitted a couple of weeks ago is called altered states um and it's a you know collection of you know my own experiences or experiences you know which i had as an adult which you know, related to my childhood or you know growing up time yeah you know so um uh where was this going um, yeah, I'm, you know, taking a lot more, you know, balanced approach. It's like, you know, me, uh, you know, talking as opposed, as opposed to Joseph Levy. Um, so yeah. And, it, um, it you know, consists of accounts on alcohol, cannabis, LSD, you know, it's you know, self-disclosing and it's kind of funny, but, um, I have, you know, like, you know, like a you know, comment section at the end of most of the chapters. And uh, I approach the material, you know, like a case narrative, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, um, you know, talk about pharmacology, spirituality, you know, Freudian psychology, you know, what have you. So it's you know educational as well, or at least I hope so.
0: I think there is a huge appetite for content like that from. People like you who have a reputation of being pioneers in the field, I think people, especially the people who listen to this podcast, are deeply curious about personal experiences uh, with psychedelics. Reed and I get that feedback often. The, the little bit that we've shared about our own experiences, people kind of gobble up. So I hope that book is met with uh, with a wide open arms
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I felt kind of bad about, you know, Joseph Levy. Like I was about to pull the plug the night of it's being you know, published. I said, I mm-hmm. just can't expose myself like that. But, you know, like I wrote the book, I f- was happy with it. Um, yeah. You know, so. Uh, you know, this um, is you know, more of a clinical approach. Um, I, I'm, I'm a lot more even handed because, mm-hmm. um, you, know, you know, that part of my life's over
0: yeah yeah and i think that oftentimes the more of ourselves our sort of authentic selves we are willing to be inevitably the more polarizing that becomes right when we're
1: oh yeah you know there's some pretty you know dark scenes in this new book um oh gosh share i'm not sure if i want to share well it'll be after (laughs) Uh, i'll hear i'll i'll uh how does this?
2: Work? This is from Altered States, the one you're working on.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's illustrated. Uh, the gal who you know did you know the cover, you know for mm-hmm. Joseph Levy, mm-hmm. uh, um, is uh, you're know, providing illustrations for every chapter, oh, and cool. you know, some of them are just some you know, pretty dark experiences, and you know, she mm-hmm. you know, does a great job. Mary Lee Chalice in Birmingham, Alabama.
0: Well, I'm excited, Rick. Um, where should people go if they want to learn more about you? I, I think your website's just com, yeah? Yeah, com.
1: You know, Facebook. Um, I don't have an Instagram or anything, so, yeah, you know, Facebook. is you. If, <laughs> you, uh, Well, uh, you know, let me show you my phone. Yeah, it's like a flip phone. I spent hey, so much you time. <laughs> I, I, I cool. spent yeah, you know, so much time in, in you know, the, well, you, well uh, you know, so these are hard to find. Yeah, and yeah, 4G. I had to retire my 3G one. Yeah, yeah, you know, Facebook. I'm not on very often. You know, the best way to reach me is you know through my website, RickStrassman.com, and you know, it's you know quite easy to contact me. I answer you know 99 you know point nine nine percent of you of you know the emails I get.
0: Well we're so grateful you answered ours and that you'd agreed to come yeah. on this show and have this long conversation with us and I think it's been a treat for me personally at least and I hopefully our Same. audience enjoys it and goes out and buys at least the psychedelic handbook uh, mm-hmm. at
1: least yeah yeah I'm quite uh, you know pleased you know with the sales uh, you, uh, you know being on you know, Joe Rogan's you know, podcast you, uh, you know, certainly helped um, yeah. you, you know boost the sales and you know get the momentum going yeah but it, it is you know continuing you know neck and neck you know with the DMT book you know, with the spirit mm-hmm. molecule so that are you, you, you know that indicates some pretty strong sales
2: very cool and correct me if i'm wrong but i think on your website i saw that if people buy it from, directly from the website you autograph it before it goes out is that really the case
1: <laughs> yeah yeah that's true you spend a little more you know but i will say best wishes or good luck things like that yeah and I will sign the book
2: cool cool well this has been an absolute pleasure and an honor uh, thank you so much Rick uh, I've had so much uh, fun talking to you and and hearing some stories so thank you
1: yeah great I enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoyed myself too okay take care
0: psychedelic therapy frontiers is brought to you by numinous a mental wellness company committed to tackling the global mental health crisis by delivering best-in-class psychedelic-assisted therapies, contributing to the body of primary and clinical psychedelic research, and fostering healing through community connection and social responsibility. You can learn more about Numinous at Numinous.com. That's N-U-M-I-N-U-S.com. If you enjoyed the show today and you want to support us, here's how you do it rate and review the show on platforms like apple Podcasts and spotify subscribe to the numinous youtube channel like the videos and share it share the show or clips of the show with someone that you think will enjoy it hey listeners it's steve thayer here letting you know that numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic assisted therapy to clients These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So, if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit Numinous.com forward slash training. That's Numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.